Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Annette Marie Lantos Tilleman Dick. And I'm Heather Ruthpack. Heather, we're so excited to have you with us again, and we're looking forward to this wonderful discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about Psalm Sunday and all the things that happened around that. And if I was to put a theme on this, it would be, who is my king? Mm, You know, is it the world? Is it my heavenly king? Mm -hmm. Really thinking about our lives and also thinking about some of these wonderful stories that we're going to be talking about. Matter of fact, the first person that we're going to be discussing is Zacchaeus. Am I saying it? Or Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus. Ways to say it. He's an interesting guy in that we see him, and that's the reason why I really love this question: Who is my king? Because he looks like when we talk about judgment and how we have a tendency to judge people. He is a short man. Little Nothing wrong with being short, you guys. Nothing wrong with being short. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but he is also chief among the publicans, and he was rich. I mean, it specifically says yeah. he was rich. He had a lot of money. And so Jesus, he knew Jesus was coming, and he was so excited. And realize this is also in the town of Jericho. Now, Jericho at this time was a major metropolis, we could say. It was also kind of the a city that was very much a part of bartering and selling and everything else. Yeah. When we think of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. realized they were walking, doing the road to Jericho yeah. because that was the way people would go in and out for business, for selling things. And actually, King Herod actually built a huge palace there because of all the commerce that was happening. So so Jericho is a wealthy place, and he's the chief of the, the tax gatherers. So you can imagine how much money he must have had. <laughs> and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up because poor Zacchaeus could not, he was short and he couldn't see the Savior and he wanted to see the Savior. So he went up to the top of a sycamore tree, was kind of on a limb, and I can imagine him just lying there and the Savior looking up, and uh, you know, and he saw that he was there, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Mm-hmm. And so he did, and he joyfully received the Savior. And when they saw it, many in the, the group, they, they murmured. And he said, wow, you know, kind of like, do they understand who, you know, he's going to the house? It, a true sinner, you know, this rich publican that everybody would have just and disliked. And were considered cheaters, basically. Exactly. They were cheaters yeah, they because were... they would say it's this much and they take more than they should, you know, and give the king just the amount that he required. Well, and we talked about how publicans were oftentimes kicked out of the synagogue. They were kind of like, uh, like just, disasso- yeah, disassociated from the community mm-hmm. because they were not considered clean. They were mm-hmm. considered, you know, uh, taking money for the Romans, which was a real big problem. And then he made haste. He brought the Savior joyfully into his home. And then Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house 
for so much as he also is the son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So I love that in that the Savior is kind of saying, look, I'm sure that Zacchaeus had been kind of kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of the community. And even though he had a lot of money in terms of his Jewishness was probably something that he could not really do, but he was he loved the Savior. And my guess is he, he read, loved the scriptures. And I mean, that he knew. That's why did he climb up that tree? You know, this yeah. man who is, I mean, though not beloved, he still had stature in that community. He climbed up that tree because he wanted to see him. And when he was asked to come, he was ready. <laughs> You're going to have dinner with me? You know, I mean, he was so and he was joyful. Excited. I mean, he so was so thrilled. excited. And, and, and unfortunately, how many of the the religious leaders who should have been so excited I know. that the Messiah was there just didn't recognize him, you know, and had the opposite reaction. In a way. So my thought, too, came to the story in the Old Testament of David. When David first, you know, basically Samuel is trying to find a new prophet. Mm. And so he goes to Jesse's house because Jesse has all of these good-looking, strong, healthy, amazing sons. And so Samuel sees seven of these, you know, sons that each one looks like a king. You know, they're strong. They're, they're amazing. They're good-looking. You know, they're everything that a king should be. And every single one, you know, Samuel says, nope, nope, nope. And finally, we get David, who's number eight. And Samuel teaches us an important lesson that goes right along with this. Look not on his countenance or the height of his stature. Boy, you know, think of Zacchaeus, a little short. Me, That's yeah. right. yes, we're into that. Yeah. <laughs> because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And I also loved Elder Marvin J. Ashton because he had such a tender heart. And his general conference talks oftentimes were about charity and look Mm -hmm. into your heart. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just such a kind, kind person. And he talked very specifically in 1988, which I know was a long time ago for a lot of people out there, (laughs) not that long ago for me, but he talked about the measure of our hearts. And he said, when the Lord measures an individual, and I want you to think of Zacchaeus and how the community had measured him in a very negative way. He does not take a tape measure around the person's head to determine his mental capacity, nor the chest to determine his manliness, but he measures the heart as an indicator of the person's capacity and potential to bless others. So I want to ask you both, too, how do you measure people in your life? And do you see mismeasurement, if you want to put it that way, how people sometimes judge wrongly other people? Well, I think that the biggest thing that I am grappling with my own, in my own approach to that issue of, of how we measure is that we do not have the tools usually to measure others. We don't know what makes them the way they are. I will say, you know, I tend to, you know, are they, do they think about others? Are they, you know, are they hard workers? Are they, it's not a good way to measure people either, you know? I mean, are they, there's so many virtues that we can use to measure and that it isn't fair either. There are many things that we can't see 
that are important. And there are, and I think that each person deserves to sort of have the full measure of our love and consideration mm-hmm. when we encounter them. And and because we just don't know, and, and often if we are willing to give people that benefit of the doubt, we will learn things that we can measure and appreciate about them. We can, whether it's their big heart or their knowledge about some obscure but interesting thing that we'd never know about, or their cons- their um, their forbearance or their or their endurance of difficult things in their lives, um, and and there's so many different ways. So my goal is to try to measure less and to appreciate more. I love that. So I I teach at BYU like you do, and and traditionally, the last day of class is kind of that goodbye lecture or whatever. And what I do is a pop quiz and the students get this quiz and oh, they must love you. Oh, and they're just like, oh no. <laughs> and the Another question quiz. very quickly they figure out the quiz is fake, you know, because it's like, <laughs> what's your GPA? How much do you weigh? How tall are you? How much money do you think you'll make in your lifetime? How much how many people tell you they love you? And every answer is a number. And then I have them fold that quiz in half so only the numbers can be seen. And I say, if I were to redistribute all these quizzes, could you get it back to the rightful owner? Interesting. And the answer always is no, because all they have is the numbers. Why not? Well, because I don't know other people's answers. And I don't have the me- I don't have the units. I don't know the questions. And I use this to show them that numbers only work in comparison to other numbers. 42 doesn't mean anything unless you know, is it talking about years, centimeters, centuries? And it um, has to be modified. A number yeah. has to be modified. Yeah, it, it, it just out of, out of the measurement itself doesn't really matter, but we look at it in comparison to, are you fast, Others. are you tall, are you quick, are you rich, are you poor? And, and so I end by just reminding them that God doesn't see us as numbers. He doesn't see us as anyway. uh, just the way Jesus saw Zacchaeus for who he was and saw him as a son of Abraham, the greatest patriarch in the Old Testament. And it reminds me, Jesus saw the crippled woman, called her the daughter of Abraham, mm-hmm. someone else who would have been ignored and probably shortened stature because of her infirmity. God sees us as our true worth. And, and, and I think, and I challenge my students and I challenge myself, can I see others the way God sees them without those measurements, without those numbers, without those comparisons? Well, and I love that because that's a perfect segue into how the Savior condemns hypocrisy and how important it is that we become genuine. And I know yeah. that that's kind of this idea of being authentic. It's mm-hmm. kind of a a, a very big buzzword right now, especially in business, the importance of being authentic. Yeah. And I know that the Savior would say, yeah, we need to be genuine. We need to be authentic. Yeah. And and it's, I think that's a theme in Christ's ministry, right? Of just calling out hypocrisy when he sees it. And and it's it's interesting how it's so often the leaders that are the ones that are being the hypocrites. And um, Patrick Mason um, wrote a book called Planted, and he talked about how 
people leave the church mainly for two reasons, being disaffected or disaffiliated. Mm -hmm. And it really boils down to their feelings about the leaders and, and the hypocrisy of leaders. And I know I've had times in my life where I've seen a leader do something, say one thing and do another. And, and you just think, and I, and it, it's really caused me to ask, what does God expect of me? What does he want of me? And is he ever going to fault me for doing what I think is best, even if what the leader asked me to do was maybe hypocritical or, you know, maybe they were asking me. And, and I think when you don't follow a church leader who's asking you to obey the commandments because you saw him break that commandment, right. it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think what what God's really encouraging leaders and all of us to do is be genuine in what you say and what you do. And it doesn't mean you have to be perfect all the time in order to be a leader. But I, I, I love nothing more than when my bishop, who's an amazing man, stands up in sacred meeting and says, I really struggle reading the scriptures. I have a difficult time reminding to yeah. Yeah, myself who it every, every day. day. Right. And I just think, oh, you're real. Yeah. Thank you for your lack of hypocrisy, you know. But when they stand and say, our family does this every single day, rain or shine, no matter what you think, okay, well, my family, you know, struggles with that. I love that genuineness of saying, yeah. here's where I'm working. Here's where I'm trying to strive. And I think that's what Christ was trying to encourage is you don't need to be perfect to encourage others to strive to be on the covenant path. And and to encourage them in the right way. I mean, that was one of the big problems with the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. That they, you know, they always say they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, you know. And yeah. that was one of the yeah. phrases in the things that we're reading today. And because you know, being so picky about this little thing and that little thing and, you know, how big your sleeves are and this, mm -hmm. when the big things are different, you know, there, yeah. there are real things. And in church, we can get distracted with little things. Yes. Very definitely. easily. You know, what people wear, what they drink, what they, all of these things, which actually, they're great. We should do them, do all, but they are not anyway, the essence of the gospel. Yeah. They aren't even close to it. Right. And, and I think one of the things the Pharisees were so careful about was just this, you know, we, we know that there was like 200 mikvahs where you washed yourself surrounding the mm -hmm. temple. And it was this ritualness of, and I always think of it as they were trying to obey their way up into heaven. And I don't need a savior. I don't need an atonement. I'm going to do it myself. And, and Christ comes in and he's like, I am here. I have you, follow me, and and let go of that worry and that stress. And all of those rules were supposed to point people to God, but they and they to got, Jesus, I and mean, they just pointing at each other, and right. they got so involved in all those details that they mm -hmm. couldn't see God at all. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. You exactly, know, that That's really... exactly right. Well, and that leads us to Palm Sunday, and the interesting thing there is this idea of the genuineness and, you know, leading to the Savior, we have this experience of the Savior coming to Jerusalem and people finally acknowledging him, which is so interesting because, you know, just a couple of days later, they're going to be crucifying him. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I felt, I as I read this this time, just the, the riotous joy of that moment when the Savior who understands and tells, of course, his disciples, 
go over to this place and you'll find a, an ass with a little colt, untie them and bring them here. And he knows exactly why. They're just doing it. At first, they don't... There are scriptures that imply that they didn't understand That's quite the point, that they were right. that they this was understand. you know Zach in Zechariah there is very clear beautiful scripture I mean the, all mm -hmm. through all of these things the Savior is using psalms and scriptures to explain what he's doing next or what is important or respond to the Pharisees and here it's a beautiful scripture in Zechariah where it um, explains the Savior's coming into um, Jerusalem and so they go and sure enough they find the um, the um, ass and the little colt, just where he said it would be, and um, and um, th and he tells them what to say because in so some of the the renditions it explains that they they're like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> he said, just tell them it's for <laughs> the Lord. And I love that that Jesus knew this and that they knew it. What you know, I've always thought, what how did, what happened? I thought, I bet. He'd healed somebody there. I bet something. Had oh, interesting. That they they knew what this was about, and the minute it was said, it was like fine, take it there, you know. And um, and then they, I, I love where they say that they put clothes on the um, on the um, colt. <laughs> I like the idea of dressing the colt up in I know. clothes. <laughs> and um, and and then the like savior. That makes his entrance into Jerusalem. And people are breaking off branches and throwing their coats down and singing and rejoicing as he makes his way. Now, this does come on the tail of the um, of um, Lazarus having been brought back from the dead. Right. And so the word has gotten out. And many people, even, you know, it says even many Pharisees knew that Jesus must be the Christ. And of course they, um, you know, Hosanna is from a word that means rescue in Hebrew. And Jesus also is from a word that means to rescue in Hebrew. Um, and so there is this great joy that the rescuer had come. And they, and at this moment, they were, and I thought how much like life this is, that there are these moments of such overwhelming, happiness and joy. And they can follow soon on with something that was very Very's hard sad. and yeah. sad. Um, but he goes in and and so I um I love that he goes to the temple and um casts out the I mean in one of the renditions he casts out the the merchandise mm -hmm. hawkers. There it's in two different places in mm -hmm. in in the different gospels. But in this one he does that and um, people let him do it. And the children are just so excited. They're shouting and thrilled and everything. And um, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders come to them and say, um, because it must be quite a tumult. Right. He says, do you see what's going on here? And he looks at to them and he quotes from Psalm 8. Mm -hmm. Um and he says, you know what, that it says in the scriptures, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But these beautiful psalms, sorry, oops, the, these beautiful psalms that he quotes to those who are seeking to detract from him. In life, we need to be able to take these moments of joy and hold them close, those sublime joys, because there will be moments of devastating sorrow and pain and sadness. But through the vision of eternity, the gift of atonement, the balm of repentance and forgiveness, we can experience a kind of joyful state that will remain with us in the midst of all those slings and arrows of life. And I feel like the Savior set the scene with this magnificent way that he entered Jerusalem. Oh, I do too. And it's amazing when we think of that Palm Sunday and immediately we talked about last week about how the temple was kind of the centerpiece mm -hmm. of the Savior's life. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine him coming off this gorgeous, beautiful, joyful experience and then going to the temple, his holy place, and seeing all of these things that shouldn't be there, you know, just the, the dirt and with animals and everything else. But it wasn't just the animals because the animals were a part of what the temple did, mm -hmm. but it was the money changers and it was the barking and the, you know, here, buy this, buy that, those kinds of things that were happening. And so it says, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So it was specifically, you know, he, he wasn't hurting the animals, but he was saying, you know, you money changers, you're not supposed to be here. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And then right after that, after he cleans out the temple, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The thought that came to my mind as I read this this time was that how often are we the blind, the lame, that we come into the temple and we become healed. But before we can come to the temple to be healed, are there things that we have to cast out of our lives? Mm. Things that we need to also, money changers, and oftentimes it can be about money. It can be about money and the cares of the world and problems that we're dealing with, that those are all things we have to cast out before we come to the temple and are healed, just like that's what the Savior did in this wonderful story, is he cast out those money changers, and then he healed those that needed healing. So when I'm thinking of the temple, I think, of course, of President Nelson. There has not been a general conference since he's been a prophet where he hasn't talked about the temple. Every single general conference since he's been prophet, he has said something about the temple. And it was really interesting as I was getting and preparing for this. Mm -hmm. I went back and looked at every single one so I could truthfully say every general conference since he's been prophet, he has done some message about the temple. But this one is my favorite. He says, repenting is the key to progress. 
Pure faith keeps us moving forward on the covenant path. Please do not fear or delay repenting. Satan delights in your misery. Cut it short. Cast his influence out of your life. Start today to experience the joy of putting off the natural man. Of repentance and forgiveness. I mean, these are the things that we really have to cast out of our hearts to be ready to receive the gifts of the temple and the healing healing. that the Lord so abundantly offered when he was here in person and which he still so abundantly offers us there. And he also talked specifically to us women about the temple. He says, the heavens are just as open to women who are endowed with God's power flowing from their priesthood covenants as they are to men who bear the priesthood. I pray that truth will register upon each of your hearts. And he's talking to us women because I believe it will change your life. Sisters, you have the right to draw liberally upon the Savior's power to help your family and others you love. And it's through the temple. So I wanted to ask you specifically, how does the temple, how is the temple a centerpiece in your life? Well, I experienced it in a very unique way, um, but it became very metaphorical. Uh, You know, as members, we have opportunities to volunteer to clean the temple. And so we took our turn and she says, okay, you're going to dust the doors and handed me toothpicks and Q-tips. And I thought, am I in trouble? (laughs) Am I being punished? And taught me how to dust the doors with toothpicks and with such intricacy. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this for four hours. And, And, you know, but once I got into it, it was fine. And, well, the temple I was cleaning was the temp temple built in 1996, I believe, was right. when it was dedicated. Well, I get home. My home was built around the same time as the temp temple. And I went down into the basement. And I was looking at my fireplace and fit, discovered that our builder had used the exact same molding on our fireplace as had been used in the doors and in the door jams of the temple. I had the exact same. And I was stunned to see that connection. Which you would have never. Yeah. Had I not spent four hours with toothpicks. Getting intimate with those doors. And as I looked at my fireplace, I could see that soot had gathered in the exact same crevices that I had just cleaned in the temple. So you got out that And toothpick. I got out the toothpick. <laughs> got out, I knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly how to clean my fireplace now. I could see the dirt I hadn't seen before. And as I was methodically doing it, this thought came to me so strongly, and that is why we go to the temple, to learn how to be in our homes. That is beautiful. And I just want to say amen to what you just said. That <laughs> is so gorgeous. And and for me, always, even cleaning the church, I you know, we would clean the church. We had a big family and lots going on. The church, the cleaning, it was already very clean, and then yeah. we clean it. And yeah. I think that that is a good thing metaphor for our lives too, that the temple sets a standard of celestial purity, which we may not have completely, but we interface with it and we can imagine it and we can move towards it better, just like you could with the learned this you would have never thought of cleaning those parts of your fireplace i don't think if you hadn't seen it our our former apostle richard j scott said we strive for the ideal while living in the real yeah right That is so beautiful. Well, and along with that, there were two great commandments that the the Lord goes through, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ tells us. And so I know, Heather, you were going to talk about those two. I 
I love this story. And, you know, and I find it so interesting that so many of the questions that the Pharisees would ask of Jesus was, well, how do I get to heaven? How do I get eternal life? It seems like that they always wanted just the rules and the laws and am I doing this correctly? And I, I joke, you know, with my students, I use the word Mormon as a verb. Am I Mormoning correctly? You know, am I doing this right? <laughs> and and what's so amazing to me about Jesus's response is he responds by telling them something that they already knew. He responds by um, sharing with them words from a prayer that they give oh, they every morning, every uh, so tell me how to say it, Shema. Well, it's it's called the Shema Israel. Okay. And Shema Israel means hear, O Israel. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad is how it begins. And it it says, the Lord our God. And this is an interesting piece because in, in Hebrew, God's name is written with four Hebrew letters. Mm -hmm. But it is usually not said by faithful right. Jews. Right. So instead of trying to pronounce that name, which the... Understanding is that we don't know how to say mm -hmm. the name of God because it's more than we can say. Yeah. They say Adonai, which means the Lord. And so it's written very differently from the way you say it. Um, the Lord our God is one, is one. Um, and then it says, and we must love, we must love the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might which is interesting because our heart and soul are different things. Right, right. All our heart, all our soul, and all our strength or might. And this is a, and then it, go, it goes on, and you know, it also, that also says, and we will put, we'll teach our children his commandments, and yes. we'll put the commandments before, we'll wind the well, commandments on our arms, I, yeah, I we'll put them, we will put them on our doors. Yeah, um, he so says, you, know, you shall, a, yeah, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Or jewels is another and, word. And you shall write them on doorposts of your house and your gates. And it just made me think of this love. And the word, I, I, I'm not quite sure what the Hebrew word is, but from what I understand, it's a word of love meaning action. It's not just a passive love, yeah, but that, a yeah, love that brings true, you to just, action. Yes. And it makes me think of our hands and our minds and our homes. How do we use those to show our love for God, and and so symbolic that it would be in those places, and um and the, the other part about the great commandment, I I mean I'll be honest for a long time I thought this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself would have been new for them, but it wasn't. But it, was. it was in Leviticus. Yeah, oh no, oh, it was this idea, and 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 so he's essentially saying you already know the two great commandments. You've been taught this your whole life. You were taught this prayer since you were a child. And um, and it just, it's so affirming for me that you know what to do. It's mm -hmm. there for you. All I need is your love. And I need you to show that love in, in what you do with your hands, what you do with your thoughts, and what you're doing in your homes. And I, I was like, that I can do. I mean, it feels so doable. It feels, it doesn't feel like I've got 613 laws I've got to obey, but like there's a way home. And it's, and I, I've always say Heavenly Father's job is to get us back home. Our job is to feel at home when we get there. And if we do this, we'll feel at home in God's presence. And you know, when, when we do feel frustrated or like something, mm -hmm. To remember, this is what we need to remember. Yeah. To love the Lord and to love 
our neighbor. And we can do that. Yeah. We can do it. Yeah. But it takes a lot. We do. We may need to repent. We may need to forgive. And then we can do that. And we and can it's, stop and, and start so that is and the go path. again. Yeah. Definitely. And that goes to the parable of the man and the two sons. Mm-hmm. Because that also is a wonderful example of what it truly means to love God. It's a great little story. And, you know, the, the um, father comes to his sons. Um, um, the fa- it says, what do you think? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. Yeah. I will not. I mean, it's, We've never had sons. No, I, I was going to say. <laughs> but yeah, afterward, afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise, go work in my vineyard today. Mm-hmm. And um, the second son said, Father, I will. I, the, um, um, the second son said, I go, sir, but went not. And then he asks, whether these two did the will of his father. And um, it's pretty obvious, but it's a short story, and it tells us what is most important, not what we say, but what we, we do. do. Mm-hmm. And that can be blown up because lots of times we can say many good things, but the question is when the rubber meets the, mo- meets the road, are we doing those things that we say? I'm so grateful that we are given this um, opportunity to study the scriptures every single year and to make them part of our heart because it does help us to try harder mm-hmm. to make sure that we are not just saying but doing mm-hmm. yeah. what the Lord wants us to do. No, I love that. And, and that idea of doing what the Lord wants us to do Uh, We're going to read now this wonderful story that also the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees, we were talking about how the Pharisees were trying to do things. They were trying to live the law, but in many ways, they just missed the mark. You know, Mm -hmm. they didn't understand what it was the Lord was really trying to have them do. Instead, they were focused on things that weren't the right thing to do. And that's also something to think about. It's almost like over time and over time, the things became more important than what the things were pointing to over and over again. Because the idea, you know, the Psalms are these beautiful Psalms praising the law because the laws help them to know that they're following in the Lord's path. And it was a real desire to do what God wanted them to do, that they would be faithful in following these laws. But over time, the following of the law became the thing. And I think that can happen in the church too. You know, I mean, I think we do see that. There are, we have far fewer laws than than Judaism or Orthodox Judaism, but we do have laws and we do become very focused on those. And I think, you know, it is important when we have children who aren't um, coming to church or whatever, that we learn to shake the cobwebs of our <laughs> idea of what everybody has to do to be on the right path, to appreciate that they are teaching us new lessons. They are stretching us in other ways. And they may be learning things they need to learn mm-hmm. that they were called in a different way to learn. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying, who is our king? Right. Are the laws our king? Right. No. Are the practices our king? Right. Mm-hmm. It's we are worshiping our king by obeying these laws. 
exactly. and staying focused on who the true king is. So we have this interesting thing. We talked about how the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are now really doing everything they can to get him to to say things that could mm-hmm. put him in jail or get rid of him in any way they can. And so they watched him and sent forth spies, which would should feign themselves just men. So they were sending these spies to pretend like they really were listening to what he was mm-hmm. teaching when they really weren't that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. So they realize that they cannot kill him. We talked about this at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But basically the governor, the Roman governor, had to declare that they could kill him. And that's what they wanted. They wanted right. to do something that would actually get him in trouble with Rome. And so they ask him this very specific question. And they said, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Mm -hmm. Now they know if he says, yes, you know, that it's, it's, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? If he says, yes, it is lawful, then automatically everybody's going to be against him, you know, because everybody hates the Romans. Yeah. If you say Mm -hmm. that you're, you're going to, the people are going to hate you, which is something they would love to have that happen. But then if he said, you know, no, it's not lawful, then the Roman government's going to hate him. Yeah. Well, more than hate him, it's... It would, he would probably be killed. Yeah. Right. Treason. He would be killed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It would be treason. So he perceived their craftiness and said, why tempt ye me? So he knows exactly why. You know, they might be spies, but he sees them for who they are. Yeah. And then he says, show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God. And they could not take hold of him his words before the people. And they marveled at his answer, and they held their peace. Now, I want to talk just for a moment about this idea of this image. You know, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar, and unto God the things which be God. Going back to this idea of who is our king? Mm-hmm. You know, Caesar was the emperor, the king of basically where they were living right there because they had been taken over by Rome. And so he's showing them an image of who was, you know, the king of the world there. And Caesar was kind of the king of the whole world at that point. But instead, we have to ask ourselves, what image is upon our countenance? And that goes right with Alma five, fourteen. And I love the fact that Alma was trying to get his people to understand the same concept. Yeah. He was trying to help them to understand, okay, what is stamped in your heart? What exactly, what is the image that you are portraying inside your heart, but also to others? And he says, and now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have you spiritually been born of God? Have you received his image in your countenances? Have you experienced this mighty change of heart. And Sister Dalton, when she was uh, president of the young women, she loved this scripture. And it was kind of a recurring theme. She she used it, uh, actually, I, I found at least two or three conference talks where she used this scripture and then talked to the women of the church and said, what image is in your countenance? And she had this this interesting, this was a poem that she said, I learned it when I was a child. 
and it has always stuck with me, and it's called It Shows in Your Face. You don't have to tell how you live each day. You don't have to tell if you work or play. A tried-and-true barometer stands in its place. You don't have to tell. It will show in your face. If you live close to God and His infinite grace, you won't have to tell. It will show in your face. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever met someone where you could just tell by their image, by their countenance? All the time. Oh, my gosh. Yesterday, I did have this incredible experience of being in in um, the church administration building. And I'm sorry to take it to that level in a way, but I will say it was a powerful experience. I was going up in the elevator, and I think Elder Ballard came out. And the light, literal light around him and the others who were with him, Elder Cook, the, there was literally light in that place. And it was different because I've been in the halls of Congress a lot with presidents and they have a power thing that's going. You feel mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. They have a, a kind of glare too, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it is so different. This, and and I, I think that that can be true with, I mean, I know that we've all met people who just radiate light and it is such a joy to be able to partake of it and to be in their presence. And once in a while, probably, I'm sure you have had that experience that is very humbling and joyful that people say, there's something about you, you know? You think, oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm we, dying. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had a, a really neat opportunity to bring someone from Romania here to Salt Lake years ago. And she had first gone to San Francisco, and then she flew to Salt Lake, and we were showing around Temple Square. And, you know, she didn't, I mean, as you know, that country was very godless, or godless for a very long time, and, and religion was kind of a new concept for them at this point. It was about 20 years ago she came. And her English wasn't really good, but we're walking around near the temple and, and just, Lots of um, missionaries and LDS people around. And and she we're sitting there and she said, San Francisco is an amazing city. She says, but here the people are beautiful. And I and I could tell she was struggling with she didn't want to make it sound like, oh, you guys are so much more beautiful here than they are in San Francisco. And and um and I don't think she was trying to say anything negative about San Francisco, but I think what she was trying to articulate, but couldn't because she didn't have the words, was she could feel the spirit mm-hmm. in the eyes of these people. You know, I'm going to say something because I just feel like I have to. We I was in Romania when I was quite young. You know, maybe mm-hmm. I was twelve. Mm-hmm. 14. My father, we drove, we were in Hungary and we drove to Romania, which parts of Romania used to be Hungarian. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because even though it was a communist country, the churches in Romania, we went, they were full of people, mm-hmm. which was very unusual. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that experience, you know. So I, there were many terrible problems in Romania, but yeah. I, that, it's interesting that you would mention that story because I, remember as a child and we I didn't usually go to church and I'm not even sure we probably went to see it you know for yeah mm-hmm. and I it was such an unusual experience especially in Eastern Europe um that I think that maybe Romanians are a little bit sensitive to that too that, yeah you know, well and I think once they're you know that leader was eliminated it yeah, it, yeah it just brought them they finally had permission to worship God yeah. again and 
But I it, just you bringing up Sister Dalton reminds me of a cute quote. She, she said that the Holy Ghost is the best be beauty cream. I love that. Uh, yeah. I love that. And I think it's true. Well, and she even said, and this kind of goes right along with that comment, the world places so much emphasis on physical attractiveness. Yeah. And would have you believe that you are to look like the elusive model on the cover of a magazine, mm -hmm. kind of like what you were saying. The Lord would tell you that you are uniquely beautiful when you are virtuous, chaste, and morally clean. Your inner beauty glows in your eyes and in your face. Yeah. I have a little thing on my thing. It says, your inner beauty needs no makeup. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. And, <laughs> and, and just on this subject, which is important to us as women, you know, I my agree. daughter, Charity, who we've spoken about a little bit, who was, uh, she was objectively a very beautiful girl for most of her life. And she then was. she got cancer in her face and it was really hard. And she had to make a conscious choice to not let that impact the way she met the world. And she said, yeah. I will have it impact the way. I'm going to do things that I didn't do before. She said, I'm dressing more flamboyantly. And I realized that letting all my love just shine out with each person I meet is going to be even more important. And she said that what she felt is she felt like people met her with even, she got more love back. Mm -hmm. She said, I realized that maybe the other way I was, sometimes people were just like, mm, you know, mm -hmm. and now people felt like they wanted to be close to her in new ways. Well, she was such a beautiful woman that I could see, but that's that's so amazing. Well, let's just, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. Were there some final thoughts that the two of you had about these beautiful scriptures that we've been reading? Well, yeah, I we didn't bring this up, so I'll just mention it, but there was so much in our readings that show that these people saw G Jesus as the king, you know, coming in on a donkey and and the the waving of the palm. I mean, there was so much, and and there's a beautiful tender story where Mary anoints Jesus in the way that you would anoint a prophet or a king, and it was her way of bearing testimony that Christ, I see you as the, my king, capital K king, and I think is there ways I just how can I let the Lord know I see you as my king? And um, and I don't need to wave palm leaves and I don't need to buy expensive oil, but um, there's so many ways every single day that I can let the Lord know you are my king. You are who I worship. And it's not all the laws and the beauty that I riches and things, but you are my one true king. I love that. I, I'm just going to close with a short thing of something that I was going to talk about, and that was that the Pharisees, it says, which I thought was very interesting. I hadn't read this exact line. Um, and when Jesus goes back to Bethany and is eating with Lazarus, whom he, Lazarus, whom he has brought forth from the dead in a very deliberate way, and his sisters, um, it says there that there were many Pharisees who believed on him, but they were too... Um, worried about the things of the world to embrace that. And I think, you know, for me, when I think of Pharisees, I think, uh-oh, think about yourself. Think about yourself. Mm -hmm. Because how much time do we spend being worried about things of the world rather than the things that the Lord really wants us to do? And, and not the things that we think he wants us to do, but the things that come up for us. And it's been a very interesting challenge for me as I've been working on these preparations and coming back. Oftentimes there are people who need me mm -hmm. and I have to decide, 
am I going to work on studying the scriptures or I'm going to put those down and meet the needs of the person who the Lord has brought into my life yeah. who needs me now. And that that has been a good tension for me, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. you know, to re realize those are not the problems. Those are the answer to what we need to be doing, you know? Oh, I agree. I wanted to just end with this, going back to who is my king. Elder Maxwell gave a beautiful talk about Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and King. And he said, my fellow men, it matters so very much how we regard and view Jesus Christ. Some seek to substitute Caesars for Christ. Others are blinded because they are looking beyond the mark when the mark is Christ. I add my small voice to the anthem of appreciation that has proceeded from this pul pulpit over the decades. I gladly and unashamedly acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and King. Mm. And so I guess as we conclude our time together, I think that we should, both all of us, everybody who's listening and the three of us as well, think and ponder upon who is our King? You know, who are we spending the time with? Who are we, you know, is his image in my countenance? Mm -hmm. Other people, when they are with me, do they think of the Savior because of what I do and how I look and how I act? That's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank oh, you. He is the best king that you'll ever get. <laughs> he that's, is the best that's king. The truth. And, <laughs> and he will live up to all of our expectations. And oh, hopes. definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.